we hear people who trusted Jesus as Savior, and they're going to share with you their testimony and publicly profess Christ as Savior through baptism. If you're being baptized or one of your family members, some of our kids are out back, but if you or one of your family members being baptized, would you stand so we can see who's in here uh, this hour who are being baptized? There we go. Bunch here, bunch here, bunch here. Super. Come out and celebrate with these dear brothers and sisters, and uh, we'll enjoy our time at the creek together. Romans chapter 1. We're in the middle of a study we've entitled Shipwrecked. It talks in 1 Timothy 1 of those whose faith was shipwrecked because they held to false doctrines, and so hopefully we're teaching what true doctrine is. This morning we look at a message of entitled Safe Harbor. We're going to look at two topics, the wrath of God and, very briefly, eternal security. We're going to spend almost all the time looking at the wrath of God and then look at how eternal security ties into that. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they they knew God, they didn't honor him, give thanks to him, became futile in their speculation, and foolish in their hearts. Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, you are without excuse. Father, we bow in your presence one more time to say thank you for sending us a Savior to escape your wrath. Teach us about him in Jesus' name. Amen. It was July 8th, 1741, and this man preached perhaps the most famous sermon in American history. July 8th, 1741. His name was, anybody know whose name was? Jonathan Edwards. And the title of the message he preached was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards preached a message on the wrath of God. And he talked about how all of us are sinners dangling over the pit of hell itself, deserving hell. But how God in his mercy and how God in his grace has spared us from eternal damnation. And the message was so powerful. And by the way, Jonathan Edwards had full manuscripts and read his sermon. I mean, he literally looked down and read his sermon the entire time. Today in communication, we would say there's no way that would communicate effectively. But in the middle of that sermon, an amazing thing happened. He's preaching on the wrath of God, sinners in the hands of an angry God, talking about how all of mankind is dangling over the pit of hell, but how God's grace, he can snatch you out if you trust in him. Towards the end of his sermon, people begin to stand up in the midst of the congregation and say, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? How can I escape the wrath of God? Now, I wish I could tell you that happened last hour. It didn't. I preached on the wrath of God, and uh, fortunately we did have some response, but we didn't have people standing up saying, tell me what I must do to be saved. But my prayer is by the end of this message, that will be your response. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is to be feared. The wrath of God is relentless. The wrath of God stands against sin and evil. The wrath of God is something that is aggressive, pursuing anything that opposes his nature. One author writes this, the wrath of God is not an invention of overzealous preachers. It's not the divine equivalent of an infant's temper tantrum, a warlord's spree, a tyrant's vengeance. It is very real and it's being revealed. And one day it will be unleashed. We sometimes use the phrase that all hell is breaking loose. That's nothing. When all heaven breaks loose, that will be something. 
In fact, people will cry out for rocks to fall upon them and to take their life. There's a story of the Greek mathematician Archimedes, who was a brilliant scholar. The Roman general Marcellus was leading his troops into Syracuse, where Archimedes was. That was his hometown. This happened in the year of 212 B.C. Archimedes was so intense on solving a math problem that literally Syracuse was being burned up around him. The Roman soldiers were coming in to kill, kill, steal, and destroy, and and he was oblivious to all of it. Eventually, into his compound came Roman soldiers who ran him through with a spear, and he lost his life. So consumed with what he was thinking about that he he, he missed everything around him and met with his own fate. That's our world. God reveals himself over and over in different ways. That's what Romans 1 talks about. But like Archimedes, we don't pay attention to the warning signs. We don't realize that judgment is impending. We avoid what God is telling us. And the result is, rather than turning to, we run from God. And then his wrath will be unveiled and unleashed, just as it was against Archimedes by the Romans. God's wrath is real. It should be feared. God's wrath is unrelenting against sin and evil. So Gary, do we need to live every day waiting for the hammer of God's wrath to drop on us? Some of you do. So Gary, do we need to cower in his presence and hide in fear? Some of you do. So Gary, do is there any security from the wrath of God? There is security. That's why we call this message Safe Harbor. That's why we call the message Safe Harbor. Let me set the context of Romans 1 for you. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he lays before them in verses 16 and 17 the good news of the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. This is verse 16 of Romans 1. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17, it's the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it's written in Habakkuk, the righteous man shall live by faith. That's the good news. Paul says, I want you to know the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be ashamed of it, and also it's that which provides salvation. And the good news of the gospel is the righteous one who comes by faith will experience salvation. And then he digresses. He says, that's the good news, but I've got to tell you the bad news. And so he develops for the next three chapters the bad news. And in the next three chapters, basically what Paul is saying is that man is lost, man is hopeless, man is helpless, and every single person deserves the wrath of God, period. Every single person born on this planet deserves the wrath of God because we're sinners. And he says only when you understand your sin can you grasp the grace of God. And so he goes forth and he builds a treatise, basically, in Romans chapter 1, showing why God's wrath should be unleashed. When you look at 118, it says the wrath of God is revealed. I think we have to understand what the word wrath is. We, it's, the Greek, it's the Greek word orge. We get the same word of anger from it. So the wrath of God by Leon Morris, who's a theologian, he defines it this way, is the settled and active opposition of God's holy nature to everything that's evil. The wrath of God is a settled and active opposition of God's holy nature to everything that's evil. Basically what we're saying is that God hates sin and God hates evil. It's his ongoing and active hatred of sin. We often think of the wrath of God as though it's like a baby throwing a temper tantrum or some other human anger. Our experience that it's self-driven as our anger is or, or maybe prone to explosions like our tempers are. But that is not the wrath of God. 
The wrath of God is calculated. The wrath of God is purposeful. The wrath of God is a response to the sinfulness of man. And so when God's wrath is unleashed and unrevealed, it comes from a holy God, a just God, a good God, and a loving God. I think we misunderstand the wrath of God. And the result is, in our day and age, not many people speak about it, talk about it, or even fear it. When I was a kid, my dad disciplined with a belt. How many of you had a dad like that? Yeah. Nowadays, they have, uh, our daughter has, what do they call it, a, a sad spoon. They've got a sad spoon today, it's a little spoon uh, that won't hurt anything, actually. It's got two eyes and an upside-down, you know, smile, or not smile, but a frown, actually. And I, I mean, you've, I mean I, my, my dad never, ever abused any of us, but when my dad reached for his belt, you knew what was coming. You know what I mean? And I began to confess every sin I'd ever committed, every sin I wasn't going to commit, and I began... I mean, begin to plead for mercy and for grace at that point in time. I'm going to tell you, the wrath of God is nothing compared to the discipline of a daddy. I'm not talking about abuse here. That's sinful and that's wrong. But the wrath of God is nothing compared to the discipline of a loving father. When God's wrath is unleashed, it's going to be eternal and it's going to be devastating. And when God's wrath is unleashed, it's going to be that which stands against sin and does stand against sin. And as much as you may have feared the discipline of your dad, it's nothing compared to the wrath of God. Well, some of you say, why, why God's wrath? I mean, why is God so mad? Why would God unleash this? You sound like one of those old hell, fire, and brimstone preachers. Well, the reality of it is the wrath of God is spoken of often in the Scriptures, Old and New Testament both. And the realization is when we understand the wrath of God, then it should cause us to fear God in a way that causes us to seek whatever safe harbor we can find. And so when we look at God's wrath, the first question is, why is God wrathful? Why is he angry? Look at verse 18. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, first of all, because men suppress the truth. Men suppress the truth. God reveals truth, but men suppress the truth. The word suppress means to hold down or to hold under. It's kind of like we had our three grandboys all this week, uh, five, five, twins that are five, a three-year-old went swimming a couple of times, and every kid that gets in a swimming pool with a dad or a grandpa, they want to do the same thing. What do they want to do? They want to dunk you, and they want to hold you under. They want to suppress you. That's the concept, to hold you down, to hold you under. And that's what Paul is saying. When truth is revealed to men, the truth that sets men free is a truth that many men prefer not to hear. And Paul says the result of that is, while seeing they don't see, while hearing they don't hear, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds, and the result is they suppress the truth. Let me put it this way. Some of you knew what that felt like before your salvation. You would be convicted about something, but you wouldn't be changed. You'd hear a sermon about maybe immorality, or maybe about gossiping, or maybe about greed, or not serving, whatever else, and and you're convicted, your heart's beating out of your chest, you feel like I'm looking at you, and you alone in this service, and I am most times, but you feel like that's you, and you alone I'm looking at, and, and so you're convicted, but you're not changed. You are remorseful, but you're not repentant. You're sorry that you sinned, but you don't turn away from that sin. You're emotionally moved, but not internally transformed. You are suppressing the truth of God's word. And he says, God's wrath is unleashed against those who hear the truth, but suppress the truth. Secondly, he says, God's wrath is also revealed and will come upon those who ignore the revelation of who God is. 
you look at verse 19, Paul's going to answer the question. Well, some of you are saying, I, I didn't, I, I, I may have suppressed the truth, but, but I, I'm with, I, I, I don't, I, I, nobody ever revealed to me who God really was. And Paul says, that's not true because that which is known about God is evident within man for God made it evident to them. See, there are two types of revelation. There are two types of revelation. There's what theologians call general revelation and then special revelation. General revelation is the world around us. General revelation is the revelation everybody in the world sees. It's the sun, the moon, the stars. It's all of creation. It's God's image in you. And, and so the whole world sees that from the, the, the guy in the loincloth in Africa. By the way, there aren't that many people in loincloths in Africa. I've been there several times. They don't live that way anymore. But the guy in the deepest, remotest jungles of Asia, that's probably more accurate. uh, He has all of general revelation to look at that reveals that there is a God. He looks at the sun, the star, the moons. And one of the things we know that is sociologically true is that every culture that's ever been discovered has had a religion. You know why? Because Ecclesiastes 4 says God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And so every culture that has ever been discovered has a religion because they know that there's something greater than them. God has revealed himself to mankind. That's general revelation. You look at the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains, the river, the sunset, whatever it may be, and you recognize there's a God. There's also special revelation. There are two special revelations given to us, the written word and the living word. The written word tells us about God. The living word is God. That's Jesus. And so all mankind has been exposed to general revelation. Now, here's the tragedy. The tragedy is we need to go. The reason we're sending 20 people to the Ukraine, the reason we're sending people to Zambia, the reason we're sending people to Rwanda, the reason we're sending people to all these other places is because we have the privilege of knowing the special revelation of Jesus Christ, of having his word in our hand. And so we go and tell people have been exposed to general revelation that, yes, indeed, there is a God and that God is Jesus Christ who can save you for all of eternity. But Paul says there are those who ignore that revelation. Most of us could raise our hand and say, that was me for a season. I saw, but I didn't believe. I I, I was moved, but I was unchanged. I was remorseful, but I was not repentant. And so we ignore the revelation of God. God reveals himself. We look at creation. We see God everywhere, but we don't respond. And so he says, uh, there are those who suppress the truth. There are those who ignore the revelation. There are also those who pervert the glory of God. He says in the next verses, verse 21, even though they knew God, that's his revelation, they did four things. They didn't honor him. They didn't give thanks to him. They became fuel in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. The result of that in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. He says, basically, God revealed his glory to mankind, but mankind, instead of worshiping the creator, worships the created. He makes idols, he makes images, and he worships those things. He perverts the glory of God. Now, I'm grateful that today we don't have idols and images that we worship, right? Right? wrong. Chuck Swindoll in one of his books writes these words. He says, the the naive, illiterate pagan worshipped a tree, a mountain, a river, a carved stone figure, or a wooden stick he made. The educated, sophisticated pagan worshipped success, self, sport, and sex. How true it is. How true it is. 
And Paul's argument is this. God has revealed himself in many ways. Through truth, but we suppress it. Through revelation, but we ignore it. And through his glory, and we pervert it. And he goes on and he says, not only that, but I want you to know the result of all that is when you continue that way, man is abandoned by God. Man is abandoned by God. When is it that man is abandoned by God? When he chooses to live in this unrepentant form, this sinful life, he becomes a sinner in the hands of an angry God. When is man abandoned by God? In these verses, it talks about three times. If you write in your Bibles, in verse 24, underline, God gave them over. Therefore, God gave them over. In verse 26, for the same reason, God gave them over. In verse 28, in the middle of the verse, God gave them over. Specifically, what, what, what Paul is saying here, there comes a time when man chooses his sinful way, and because he continues to choose that sinful way, rather than walking in repentance, God's basically saying, you want it, you got it. You want it, you got it. You want to continue in this way, I'm going to let you go in that way. And one of the greatest forms of judgment and punishment is to continue to give mankind that which he wants. And so when does God abandon man? Look at verse 24. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Specifically, he abandoned them over to sexual immorality. He says, you want sex and you want more sex, I'm going to give you more sex. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature. Verse 26, for the same reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for other men, verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things that are not proper, filling them with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient appearance without understanding. Basically, God says, you want this sinful lifestyle? I'm going to give it to you. You want more? I'm going to give you more. Specifically, he abandoned them to sexual immorality. He says, you want sex, sex, and more sex? I'm going to give it to you. If there's anything that speaks to our world, perhaps this is it. You want it, you got it. And then the next thing he says, I'm going to give you over to perversion. Men exchanging women for other men, women exchanging men for other women. It's called homosexuality. By the way, there's a great debate in our nation and also in some churches about homosexuality. Scriptures are clear. Homosexuality is sinful, it's wrong. And God says, if you want it, I'm going to give it to you. You're going to have more of it. And the result is you're going to experience my wrath. We love the homosexual, but we hate the sin, just as any other situation. God's word is clear. Our nation can debate it, but the word of God is very clear. Churches can debate it, shame on them, because the word of God is clear. The church is debating that. Our churches have given up the trust in the truth of God's word. God's word is very clear. It also says that he's abandoned them to a depraved lifestyle. It says to the gossip, I'm going to let you gossip more. To the slander, you're going to slander more. To the evil one, you're going to do more evil. To, to the boastful, you're going to become more boastful. The envious, and it's, it's like living in this cesspool. It's thinking that this indulgence is going to bring you satisfaction. He says, I want you to know when you continue down this way, you will experience not only unhappiness and not only a a life that is going to be filled with yourself, but you're one day going to experience the wrath of God. 
And so he says, there comes a time when God's wrath is unleashed, when man will be abandoned by God. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, because God has revealed his truth to you and you've suppressed it, and because God has revealed himself to you and you've ignored it, and because he's shown his glory to you and you've perverted it, you are without excuse. That's the bad news. Chapter 2, verse 1, underline in your Bibles, you are without excuse excuse. You cannot stand before the throne of God and say, God, I didn't know this was coming. It's coming. Archimedes solving his math problem in his compound should have known that the ire of the Romans was coming and he should have run. He should have taken cover. He should have hid, but he just stood there like a fool. I don't know how anybody can be so concentrated on a math problem anyway. With all the warnings around him, he didn't heed them, and he died. And Paul is waving his arms to every person on this planet saying, God's wrath is coming. You've suppressed the truth. You've ignored his revelation, and you've perverted his glory. He's abandoned you to your sin, so you better turn to him, because you, my friend, are without excuse. You want more? I'm going to give you more. I'm going to give you more than you ever wanted. So the bad news is you're without excuse. Now, if we just stopped this sermon here, you would walk out and say, man, I'm not going back to that place again. That guy's crazy. Because I come to worship to get something. Really. I thought you came to worship to give. I thought you came here. You don't walk out this room saying, What did you get out of this morning's service? You walk out saying, man, I trust that God's glory that I gave to him to magnify him. See, we can pervert things easily just by making it about ourselves. Just for coming to get what we want, what we can get. I'm not going back there. They don't. Well, the reality of it is there is some good news to go with that bad news. The good news is this. Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. That's called propitiation. Second longest word I know behind delicatessen right there. (laughs) The good news is Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. We deserve the wrath of God. We were sinners in the hands of an angry God. But God in his great love for us has provided us a safe harbor, a way of escape. You see, there are people in our world who are trying to find any kind of way to escape the wrath of God or live their lives apart from him. But the reality is there's one way, and that way was initiated by the Father, not by us. In 1 John 2, 2, it says he is the propitiation. If you get a New American Standard, that's the words that's used. If you get an NIV, that's what you see in front of you. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came as a covering. That's what the word means. He came as an atonement, a covering. He came as the one who could appease the wrath of God because he took your sin upon himself at Calvary. Scriptures say in 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation for our sins. Notice well that God is the one who initiates that. In fact, the scriptures, most familiar verse of scripture tells us God is the one who in his love initiated salvation for us. It's John 3.16, quote it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All this was initiated by God. So when you hear a sermon on the wrath of God, recognize you can escape the wrath of God by the love of God. 
He is the one who provided a way of escape from his wrath. Standing between you and hell is the cross of Jesus who was sent by his Father because of his love for you. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Romans 5.9. There is salvation from the wrath of God. You can have a safe harbor if you place your trust in Jesus Christ. If not, I would not start my car to leave the parking lot today. Because you're a sinner in the hands of an angry God. If you don't know Jesus is your Savior, I, I, I would move out of this building. Because you will experience the wrath of God. And you might laugh about it and say, Oh, I want to go to hell. That's where all my boys are. I love what Tony Evans says. Tony Evans, my prophet, Dallas Seminary, teaches at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. He said, uh, those of you think you're going to go to hell and you're going to hang out with your homies and party there? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn the burner of your stove on. And after it gets good and hot, I want you to sit on it and see what kind of party you're going to have. (laughs) That's what hell's like. That's just the beginning of what it's like. We'll do a message on hell in a couple of weeks. That'll be an exciting Sunday too, right? What does hell have to do with eternal security? Well, the reality of it is the only way you escape the wrath of God is by trusting the Son of God. And when you trust in the Son of God, you never have to worry about fearing the wrath of God. When you meet Jesus as Savior, you don't need to worry about God as judge. So you can be assured of that. The real assurance is a realization that one possesses eternal life and will spend eternity in the presence of God. This is in your bulletin, by the way. You can look at the outline. Those definitions are there. Assurance is I know that I one day will spend eternity in the presence of God. In 1 John 5.13, it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may think that you have eternal life. Is that what it says? Or that you may know, uh, hope you have eternal life? order that you may know, that you can know with certainty that you're headed to heaven. That's not an arrogant statement. That's a statement of humility because the only way you can know it is through the Son of God, period. The only way you can know it, there's a promise in 1 John 5.13, you can know, you can have full assurance that you're headed to heaven if you've trusted in the Son of God for the forgiveness of your sins. Eternal security is the work of God that guarantees the gift of salvation once received is forever and cannot be lost. You see, when you realize that you deserve the wrath of God, but he provides you the good news, the atoning sacrifice that's found in the Savior, you recognize you're secure, not because of anything you've done, but because everything he's done for you. That's how you're secure. Your security has nothing to do with yourself. It has everything to do with him. You're secure by the Father. In fact, what the Father says in, in uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39, and I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You cannot be separated from Christ after you come to know him as your Savior. You were included everything that could be included. Paul's given merisms, opposites, and he's saying, I want you to know that nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Once you know Christ, 
Christ as Savior, you are secured by the Father. You're also secured by the Son. In John 10, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus says, You're doubly secure. You are in my hand, and I am in the Father's hand. And the result is, as my sheep, I know who you are, and you are secure in me and secured by the Father. You will not lose a security that's been given to you by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus when you trust him as your Savior. You're also secured by the Spirit in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Towards the end it says, We have been sealed with the Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He guarantees our inheritance. If you can lose your salvation, the Holy Spirit is a liar. And he's not. Scriptures say that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. If you can lose your salvation, there are a number of things that could happen to you that would have to be undone that you experience at the point of your salvation. You would have to become unregenerated, unjustified. You would have to be unreconciled. You'd have to be orphaned by a father who adopted you. Many things that can't be undone because God has done this for you. Period. You have safe harbor. Only if you trusted Christ as Savior. The only escape from the wrath of God is trust specifically for the forgiveness of your sins in the Son of God. Three applications and I'll close. Three applications regarding the wrath of God and eternal security. Application number one, some of you should be scared to death. Be fearful. You want to write two words down? Write them down. Be fearful. Be fearful. Jesus says there are men who want to kill themselves. They're going to cry for the rocks to fall upon them. Romans 2.1 says you're without excuse. If you've suppressed the truth of God, ignored the revelation of God, perverted the glory of God, you'll have hell to pay. Literally. Forever. I'd be scared to death. I wasn't sure Jesus was my Savior. I wouldn't get out of the chair I'm sitting in until I was sure of that because of what awaits you on the other side. Secondly, number one, be fearful. Number two, be thankful. Romans 8, 1, write it down, look at it later. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you know Jesus is Savior, you should say, thank God, praise God, glory, hallelujah. You should say, thank God, glory to God, and hallelujah. Because you were a sinner in the hands of an angry God dangling over the pit of hell, but God, by his mercy, has extended to you through his love the hope of heaven for all of eternity. Wow. You're spared. You're spared. By God's grace, heaven is yours. He's adopted. Do you know what it means to be adopted? Taking you into his family to provide you a home and everything. We've got a bunch of folks adopting kids here. It's amazing. He's justified. He's declared over your life innocent forever. Done. Be fearful. Be thankful. Be bold. By be bold, I mean there are people around you every day who are headed to a crisis eternity, you hold the truth, the knowledge of the truth in your heart, in your mind. Why would you not share that? 
Why would you not? Be bold. The only escape from the wrath of God is trust in the Son of God. You know, you think discipline from a daddy's bad. Do you remember the story of the little boy who was acting up in church, kept acting up, and finally the dad leaned over and said, you act up one more time, I'm going to take you in the foyer, I'm going to spank you. Kid acted up one more time, the four-year-old was scooped up by the dad, put him under his arms, they hit the back door, the dad opens the door, the kid turns around, screams at the congregation, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. <laughs> hey, that's what I want to do this morning. I want to pray for you. Some of you know Jesus as Savior. Most of you do. Some of you don't. Some of you have known him as Savior, but you have been abandoned to other stuff right now. A life of immorality, homosexuality, gossiping, greed, you name it, it's there. I want to pray for you. You know, our hearts should be thankful. Worship team, would you guys come up? Our hearts should be thankful for the Lamb of God who went to the cross as our atoning sacrifice so we can have forgiveness. So here's how I want to conclude the service. We're going to worship him. We're going to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for all you've done. And if you know him as Savior, I want you to sing that song. If there's any doubt in your mind that he's your Savior, I'm asking you not to sing. I'm asking you to come and pray. Got some elders in here. If you're an elder, elder and wife, would you stand up? Got some elders and wives in here. Got any in here this hour? Would you guys go to the back for me? If you go to the, Mike, take the center. David, you and Karen, take that side. Bev and I will be down here. Here's what I want you to do, man. You've suppressed the truth of God, perverted the glory of God. You've ignored the revelation of God. I want you to go pray with one of our elders and their wives. Or, or maybe your heart is in the wrong place. I want you to go back there. Or maybe you just want to come get in your knees down here. Whatever God leads you to do, you do it. Bev and I will be down here, elders and wives in the back. You come and pray with somebody. You come get your knees and pray by yourself. And then you sing. You get right with him first. But there's any doubt in your mind, don't leave this room. Unless Christ is your Savior. If he's your Savior, we're going to worship him. Because his atoning sacrifice has spared us from a Christless eternity and given us glory forever. Amen? Let's stand and sing.
we say thanks. All you've done, all you've given. We just love you, we honor you, we adore you. And God, our deepest desire, our deepest desire is that you would be famous among us, that you'd receive glory and honor. And so we bless you in every way we can. We thank you for the work you're doing in the hearts of many in our body. Touch us in deep places so we'll be changed.